leading up to Easter. And traditionally, the season of Lent has been a time of sacrifice, a time of penitence, of repentance, uh, a time of drawing closer to the Lord through increased prayer and scripture reading. Some Christians give something up for Lent each year. And we shouldn't do that as if we're doing it to earn the favor of God. We shouldn't sacrifice something for Lent as if we're telling God that we are super spiritual and signaling to God that somehow we've obtained or want to obtain a super spiritual status. The practices of Lent can be legitimate when we use them as a symbol or a sign of our repentance, of our penitence, and when we grow in these disciplines, we, we can grow in greater dependence upon the Lord. So they're legitimate practices that, that we can use. But I was thinking about this upcoming Lenten season and our gospel lesson today, the transfiguration of Jesus and how they might be connected. What's the connection between Lent, a season of sacrifice, and the transfiguration? Well, I think I found a connection. Before Jesus' transfiguration, he told his disciples in Matthew 16 that they're going to have to give something up for him. That they have to give up, be willing to give up their very life. If anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross and follow me, he said. If anyone would come, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What does it profit a man if he has everything but loses his soul? And so Jesus is calling his disciples and us to give the sacrifice of our life to him for the sake of our soul. You know, to be a Christian is to live a life of sacrifice to Christ. There are degrees of sacrifice that we're called to make at different seasons of life in different places. Just being here this morning on a Sunday is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of time. It's a sacrifice of effort. And uh, there are many other things that you could be doing. We won't list them. There are many other things that you could be doing this morning rather than gathering together with God's people to worship. But it's a sacrifice, the sacrifice of worship, an offering of praise, just to arrive here on a Sunday morning. Christians give money and talent and time to Jesus Christ. And again, we're ultimately called to give our very life to him. To the world, this is foolish. To the world, what we are doing in here doesn't make a whole lot of sense, other than perhaps it's religious activity that gives us some sort of therapeutic boost. But it's because they haven't seen what we've seen. It's because they haven't seen the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. See, that's the difference. That's why we as Christians are willing to sacrifice to Him because of the greatness and glory that we've seen. And sometimes we might be tempted to wonder, is it worth the sacrifice? Sometimes we are tempted to give back, or to hold back rather, offering all of ourselves 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe when Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples, I'm calling you to give your very life to me, maybe they wondered, is it worth the cost? But then six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, John, his inner circle, these three who would become pillars of the early church, up this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. God is going to reveal to these three disciples the glory and greatness of his Son so that they will stay on the path of following him even though it will cost them everything. So let's look at this story of the transfiguration of Jesus to understand something more of the greatness and majesty of our Lord. And this will call us, I think, to a place of deeper commitment to Him. At least that's my hope and my prayer. Jesus goes up to this mountain, and Luke tells us, it's not in Matthew, but Luke tells us that He was there to pray. And while He was praying, something miraculous happened to Him, something supernatural. He was, Matthew says, transfigured before these three disciples. And and this word that's translated transfigured is the Greek word from which we get our word um, metamorphosis. He was changed. He was transformed. So much so that it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. He's radiating with this luminosity which is the glory, the divine glory of God. So that's what we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. The divine glory of Jesus. It's as if God the Father pulled back the veil of Jesus' humanity, allowing the disciples to see His divine glory. Now, we have to be careful here because all of Jesus' life reveals the divine nature. He's fully human and fully divine all the time. And and so all of Jesus' life and ministry revealed the divine nature and glory of God the Father. When He healed, when He forgave, when He taught, this was the Father's nature coming out of Him. But at the transfiguration, His divine glory was visibly manifest in a different way that they had never seen before. I think part of this is, this is a preview of Jesus' glory when He comes again a second time. It's a preview of His glory when He comes again to judge the living and the dead. And I say that because right at the end of Matthew 16, Jesus talks about there's coming a day when the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and with the holy angels to judge all people, will be held accountable before Him, before the Son of Man, who's coming in glory. So part of this manifestation of His glory is to verify what He's told His apostles. Here's a preview. Here's a sneak peek, if you will, of what I was telling you. But I think it's also an echo of the past. It's an echo of the glory of God's presence revealed in the past. And we read this morning from Exodus 24 about the appearance of the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. 
And it says the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of this mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So there's an association between divine glory and blazing light in the Old Testament. And we know from elsewhere, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God. His very face was illuminated with this light which was the divine glory. Now, the difference is that Jesus isn't just reflecting the divine glory. The glory is coming from him. <laughs> Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his being. The sun, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint, exact stamp of the being of God. So this is one of the things we learn about the greatness of Jesus, that he is the radiance, the very radiance of the divine glory. Now we're enamored with glory in this culture, aren't we? Tonight will be the Oscars. There'll be a lot of people parading the glory that they have. Isn't that right? It's the Oscars tonight, or am I wrong about that? I think I heard that this morning. So our culture is enamored with glory. But it's a glory that fades. It's a glory that doesn't last. It's, it's here today and gone tomorrow. The sports stars that my children are obsessed with, I know one day what's going to happen to them because I've seen it with the sports stars that I've grown up with. Their glory is going to fade. We're enamored with a glory that doesn't last. There's something in us that's attracted to glory and beauty and majesty. And that's something implanted by us, by God. It's implanted by God. But it's to point us to the glory that really lasts. And that is the glory that's found in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That's one of the things we learn about his greatness. And then we learn that Jesus is the fulfillment. Here's another Part of Jesus' greatness revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's plans for salvation. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. And I base that on the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Now, this is already a mysterious and miraculous thing that's happening to Jesus, but as if that weren't enough, here comes Moses and Elijah appearing at the mountain as well. Moses represents the law of the Old Testament, and Elijah represents the prophets. The Jews believed that when, when the Messiah came at the end of time, God was going to send a Moses-like figure, and that Elijah would make an appearance to herald the coming of the king, to herald the coming of the kingdom of God. And so having Moses and Elijah there representing the law and the prophets as a herald of the coming kingdom of God signifies that Jesus' God's plan, rather, of salvation is reaching its culmination in him. I like what Kent Hughes in his commentary says about this part of the story. He says, on the Mount of Transfiguration, I see Moses, law, Moses, and prophets, Elijah, shaking hands with gospel, Jesus, and saying, hello, finally nice to meet you. <laughs> law and prophets, shaking hands, meeting gospel, Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus represents a new chapter, a new era, a new turning point, and the unfolding plan 
of God's salvation. It's reached its culmination. It's reached its climax in Jesus Christ. So we're no, under, no longer under the Old Testament covenant. Thank God. We don't have to offer an animal sacrifice to be accepted by God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We don't have to follow the ritual and ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Jesus has fulfilled all the law for us. And he's the final prophetic word. He's the final word regarding the nature and purpose of God for salvation to the world. So all of God's purposes are found in Jesus Christ. That's part of what this transfiguration scene tells us. And then we hear, of course, that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. This is kind of a humorous part of the scene when Peter begins blurting. Peter, the apostle of blurting. Because he was afraid, says in another gospel. He didn't know what to say. And so he just said whatever was on his mind. And, and he said, Lord, it's good for us that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I think he wants to memorialize this experience. He wants to do what people did in the Old Testament when they had this experience of God's presence, a theophany. They built a shrine. They built a memorial. But Jesus is calling him. He's going to call him down from the mountain. You can't stay on the mountaintop. You've got to go down to the valley. You've got to go down where the cross is. You've got to give your life away. You've got to follow me, Peter. Well, as Peter was speaking this, God the Father says, listen to my son. Stop talking, Peter. Close your mouth and open your ears and listen to my son. And that's a word for all of us, isn't it? We may not have this mountaintop experience and we're not going to have the same mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John had. This was reserved for a select few. We're not going to see the unveiled glory of Christ until we get to heaven. But for now, the word is, listen. Listen to him. Listen to Christ. God gave this mountaintop vision to these disciples to sustain them in the valley. So that when it got tough, tough to follow him, they would continue on, knowing the greatness and glory of their Lord. And this experience left an indelible mark on their minds and on their hearts. And we see that when Peter writes in his second letter in chapter 1. This is towards Peter, the end of his life. Most uh, scholars would date this towards the end of his life. And he says to his readers, he says, I want you to know we didn't make this up. We're not making this up. When we talk about the glory and majesty and the greatness of Jesus Christ, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We ourselves saw it. We saw and we heard. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And, and Peter is saying, I know that you haven't seen this, but trust us as eyewitnesses, as apostles. And this again is the position that we're in as believers who have not seen the divine glory of Jesus yet with our eyes. We're called to trust the witnesses. This is part of faith. This is part of belief. This is part of believing anything, by the way. Some people make a distinction. Well, faith is just blind trust, and there's other ways of believing where we can verify and prove what we believe. 
But there's all sorts of things that we believe on the authority of other witnesses, isn't there? We can't test every scientific experiment ourselves and verify its reliability. We have to trust. We have to trust historical documents. We're in this position of trusting reliable witnesses. And Peter says, I want you to believe what we've seen. And you can encounter the truth of God, he goes on and says, by listening to the voice of God through the Scripture. Because the Scripture is inspired by God himself. But this left an indelible mark on Peter's heart and mind. Friends, we need to be reminded of the greatness and glory of Jesus so that we'll stay faithful to him in difficult times. When we are called to take up our cross, no matter what that means, when we are called to make a sacrifice, to do something difficult for him, Let's remember who he is. We understand this idea of sacrificing for something greater than ourselves, don't we? I mean, it's just part of what it means to be a human, and we recognize the nobility of this, sacrificing ourselves for something greater. Parents do that all the time for their children. Leaders of movements do this for the cause Patriots do this for their country. They sacrifice themselves for something greater, more glorious. I was reading this week about Nathan Hale. Now, here's a trivia question. You know who Nathan Hale was? He was, some of you know, the first, the, 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 one of the first American heroes, a hero of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Contemporary descriptions say that he was handsome, fun-loving, and a devout Christian. And he volunteered with Washington's army to go behind enemy lines to become a spy. And he was captured by the British. He was sentenced to death by hanging. And you know his last words. My only regret is that I have but one life to give to my country. What a noble sacrifice. He knew the greatness of ideas like liberty and freedom. He had been captured by ideas like liberty and freedom and the glory of his country, so he was proud to sacrifice his life, and he wished he could do more. Well, that's the point I'm trying to make here. When we behold the greatness and glory of Christ, we'll be drawn to sacrifice and to give our life for him. And we can go through the valleys because of this mountaintop truth of who Jesus is. A valley might be a time of testing and suffering, of temptation. The valley might be an illness. The valley might be a betrayal by a friend or family member. The valley might be, this is not what I thought my life was turning out to be. This was not what my ministry was turning out to be. This is not what I've hoped and prayed for. But the word is, don't let these circumstances or questions or doubts pry your mind and your eyes away from the greatness of Jesus Christ. The reason we're Christians is because of who he is. Because of who he is. Now, our colic for the day, I want to draw your attention to that in conclusion once more. Because I want to commend this to you this week as a prayer that you can use. Let's read it 
Let's read it together. Together. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord Jesus, I pray for each one of us here that you would indeed do that. During this upcoming season of Lent that we would draw closer to you and behold more and more your glory. Help us to bear the cross then in light of your glory, whatever cross that is, whatever that means for us this season of our life, whatever valley we are in. Help us to be propelled by the truth of your greatness and your glory, knowing that we are pilgrims on this, on this journey, pilgrims in this world. And glory is the final word for us as we're united with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.